Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, March 20th by our lead pastor, Rod Heppel. Today's the 17th message in our series entitled, Acts, You Will Be My Witnesses. For more information about our church, check out sardisfellowship.com. As we enter into the last passages in Acts, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul is on a bunch of these travels as he goes from town to town and city to city. They call this the missionary journeys that Paul took. Three different ones in particular, and if you look at this map here with the different lines with different colors, you'll see that the first journey was a shorter one, and then the second a bit longer, and the third one longer as well. And sometimes they were going into new cities and towns, and sometimes they were going back to the ones where they had planted churches to encourage the believers in Christ. Uh, The final pink line there shows you that he took his final voyage to Rome, but did not return. And that is because According to history, the Apostle Paul died for his faith in Rome, along with other Christians during a time of persecution under the Emperor Nero. Now, as we track the Apostle Paul and his companions, we're going to see that on these trips, uh, they're sharing the gospel. And so the theme that we've been talking about by way of being witnesses, starting in Jerusalem and going into the ends of the earth, we're going to see how that has worked its way out. Jesus said to his first disciples in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And so that signifies something, this ends of the earth. And with Paul going to Rome, and actually with the intention of even possibly going to Spain, because he mentions that in chapter 15, we see that this is the idea of the gospel going out to the ends of the earth. So that's what the book of Acts is about, and we're going to see that as we come into these final 10 chapters of Acts, that the gospel goes with the Apostle Paul, and the book of Acts takes him and ends in Rome. Now, what were they to be witnesses of? Well, they were to be witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Those were those first apostles who saw that and could testify to it. This is the central tenet of the Christian faith. It was the very thing that created the church was on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the resurrection proved that Jesus is the Son of God. The resurrection proved that he, Jesus, has power over sin and death and therefore can offer us the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. The resurrection proves that God redeems all people who put their faith and trust in Jesus, those who believe in him, those who are followers of Christ. And the resurrection overthrows sin. It overthrows the power of Satan and his rule in our lives. It overthrows empty philosophies, and it overthrows vain religious practices. It frees the human heart to not only know God, but to enter into a relationship with God. That's what the gospel does, and that's what the Apostle Paul was preaching as he went into the Gentile world, and he preached Christ crucified and resurrected from the dead. That was the transforming message that had a real ripple effect in the pagan cultures that he entered. So today's message is on Paul's third missionary journey. And we're going to see how on this tour, this trip that he was on, that the gospel really had an impact in Ephesus. Last week, we were in Greece. Uh, We looked at Athens and Corinth with Pastor Rob Schaff. And now today, we're, we're in a city not that far across the Aegean Sea in Ephesus. We're also in chapters 18 to 20 in Acts, if you want to get your Bible and follow along there. What we're about to see is the relationship that the Apostle Paul has to this church in Ephesus. How it started, really we should say, how God started this church through the Apostle Paul and the amazing things that God chose to do through Paul's life. He was there in Ephesus for a significant amount of time. 
as he was in a few of the other cities as well, like Philippi uh, and Corinth. He stays three years in Ephesus. So the question I want to start with, though, is have you ever given your heart fully to something? I mean, have you ever really been emotionally invested in something where your time and your energy and your emotion went into it? And, you know, it could be anything, right? It could be like um, a high school musical or drama. It could be a sports team that you were a part of. And maybe you went to the playoffs and then to provincials or something like that. Or maybe it's um, a new home where you poured time and energy into building this house and you just, there's so much invested into it. And where I'm going with this idea is that by nature of spending time invested in something and together with others, there's a deep connection that happens. Now, sometimes this can happen through good things and sometimes this happens through challenging or difficult times. A good memory I have in Bolivia was when my wife and I and our kids were there and we were working amongst uh, a number of churches in the city of Santa Cruz, Bolivia, predominantly in the area of youth ministry. And the, the denomination owned a property outside the city where they wanted to build a camp. In fact, they had tried to do so once, but it failed. And when I went out there to see that property and I'd worked with all the youth groups, I realized, man, this could be a great site for a camp. And, and so we, we started to rally the churches together and they responded so amazingly. And Camp Torope came alive. It was amazing. Dormitories for the guys and the girls and all sorts of uh, the amenities that are needed to run a camp. And even a camp manager that made the site look so beautiful. And when they had their weekend retreats, there would be hundreds of kids and youth and families that came out to these retreat weekends. You know, it was something for me that I couldn't help but celebrate because two years of investment of time and energy gone into that place, working shoulder to shoulder with a bunch of people where we shared that experience together. At the end of it, our hearts were really connected. So this is kind of the Apostle Paul's experiences as he comes to places like Ephesus to work. But sometimes it's through the hardship. And we're going to see that in Ephesus, while there were some amazing things that took place, there were also some incredibly difficult things, opposition. But through that suffering, we're going to see a deep sense of connection between the believers with the Apostle Paul. So this is Paul's experience in a number of these cities. Ephesus is one of those places. He even says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8 and 9, as he describes his time there, he says, but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. So you get this combination of a, an effective work as well as opposition at the same time. Luke writes two chapters, almost two, two and a half chapters on the experience of the Apostle Paul in Ephesus. And what I want us to focus on because we can't focus on everything are three things. One, the power of God. Two, a riot. And three, a tearful farewell. And so let's begin by looking at the city of Ephesus. A bit of information about this place. And there's two things it was known for. One was for commerce, for trade. It was a port city. And two, for the temple of Artemis. So here, if you look at this map, you'll see where Ephesus is located on the Aegean Sea there. And it had a port, and that's why it was uh, an important city. Um in what would be modern-day Turkey. At the time of the Apostle Paul, it was a pretty wealthy city center, but it was kind of starting to decline. It had, had kind of had its heyday and its peak. And one of the reasons why it was declining was because there had been deforestation in the area, and with that came erosion. And with the erosion came the rains that moved all the silt down into the river where the port was located. And pretty soon it jammed that, the mouth of that river so that 
ships could no longer get in there and deliver their goods. And so this had started to happen in the time of the Apostle Paul. Uh, but it still stood as a player in the economic world of the day. Ephesus was a major city center in the Roman Empire. In fact, it was the capital in the Asian continent under Rome. Now, the second thing is this temple, uh, which was a very impressive temple called the Temple of Artemis. Uh, people came from all over the known world there. They wanted to worship, but they also wanted to bank their money because they figured that the temple goddess, the deity Artemis, that's her Greek name, and her Roman name would be Diana, um, could protect the wealth that they invested there at like that temple bank. Artemis was known for a couple of things. One, her fertility for young women and for protecting young women, as well as uh, the success in hunting. She was the goddess of the hunt. Um, just think Katniss, for those of you who have seen the Hunger Games. Artemis, in Greek mythology, is the daughter of Zeus and the twin sister of Apollo. Okay, so that's just a bit of kind of the mindset of the people at that time and what was happening at this temple. They built this magnificent site in honor of her, Artemis. And it was so big and so beautiful that it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Had 127 columns to it, and these columns stood 60 feet tall. And the square footage of it was four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens, uh, which of course was also very famous. So these ruins have been unearthed today, and if you want to go there, you could actually see it for yourself. Now, since the commerce was declining due to the trade issue with the, the whole uh, river that was the problem there, what ended up happening is that this temple worship really was tourism, and it was really important for ongoing business. If the ports were starting to become less and less used, then tourism was super important that they kept that going because of the spinoff of business that came through temple worship. It's kind of like what happens with professional sports today where they get TV contracts and royalties for all their logos and the sports paraphernalia. There's a spin-off to the game itself, right? And that's kind of what was happening in Ephesus with temple worship, and they needed to keep this going. And the reason why I bring this up is all of this is going to come into play in our story that we're going to read now. So the first thing I want us to look at is the power of God. When Paul came to Ephesus, he met some disciples, it says, uh, who knew only of John and his baptism, and they didn't know Jesus. Paul seems to think that these were believers. There was something about them that was so true that he figured that they must have been followers of Christ. But upon asking them, had they received the Holy Spirit when they believed, they said, we don't even know of the Holy Spirit. And so then Paul kind of backs up his question a little bit, and he says, okay, well, which baptism did you receive? And they said, John's. To which Paul replies this. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now, we've seen this a number of times throughout the book of Acts, where the coming of the Holy Spirit is coupled with a supernatural or a spiritual experience of speaking in tongues or prophesying. As something... Uh, is starting to happen here in Ephesus, Paul does what he usually does. These believers uh, are Jewish background, and, and they have been attending the synagogue. So Paul, that's his pattern. He goes to the synagogue, and he begins to preach there. But as he's preaching there, he faces this opposition. And those Jewish leaders are not impressed with Paul. Uh, they become obstinate, and they refuse to believe, and they publicly maligned the way. You've probably recognized this term before in the book of Acts, the way 
is speaking of those who are the followers of Jesus Christ, the Christians, the little Christ followers. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall called Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. I hope you catch that last part there. Okay, he's there two years. He's in a public setting. He's teaching and people are coming and they're coming and hearing about the gospel message and that just spreads all over Asia and that part of the, the world. Then it goes on to say that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. You know, we kind of pause at a moment like that and scratch our heads a bit and say, what's going on with that? What is that all about? I mean, it actually kind of seems a little bit superstitious, right? Something that Paul had worn, that someone would touch and they'd be healed. It's very unusual, which of course is what the text actually tells us here because if you look at how Luke describes it, he calls it extraordinary miracles. Um, there were the ordinary miracles and then extraordinary miracles. So what is Luke kind of bringing to our attention here? He's trying to say this is, was unusual. Um, probably he's saying that the usual manner in which miracles were seen was through the laying on of hands and people, the whole coming of the Holy Spirit or laying on hands and a person healed, right? But in this case, it was an indirect healing where someone took something that Paul had been wearing, took it to a person and they were healed. So it was kind of this indirect thing that happened without the laying on of hands. But why would God choose to work in this way? Like we, we don't really know why he would choose to do this. We have to believe that he did do it, but maybe we can surmise a little bit that God is working to draw people to himself. He's drawing people who are very much a part of a religious setting where a lot of magic was practiced, a lot of sorcery and witchcraft and temple worship and occult worship and stuff like that. And it seems to be that this passage is all about the power of God. We're going to see it in a few different ways, and this might be just one of those ways that God is demonstrating that his power is greater than all the other powers that the people believed in. And it's associated to the man, Paul, who preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is possible that that's the why behind God working in this way. But what we want to note is this, that it's not the Apostle Paul himself who's doing the miracle. I'm not even sure that he was aware of the fact that this was happening. It was God who was doing the miracles. People are just the conduit through whom God chooses to display his power and to work. We need to remember that it is always God who is the hero of these stories. We read about Peter, and sometimes we focus too much on the person, and we think they're the hero, but they're not. It's not Peter, and it's not James, and it's not Barnabas, and it's not Paul. The hero is God himself, which is why we have often said in this sermon series that the title of this sermon series, uh, or the title of the book of Acts, could actually be the Acts of God through the Apostles. It's often referred to as the Acts of the Apostles, but we all know that it's what God is doing through them. So our story carries on under this theme of the power of God. Now, a Jewish high priest had seven sons, and they were into this power thing. Uh, they had seen Paul and heard Paul, and they paid attention, much like Simon the sorcerer, who back in chapter 8, when he saw the laying on of hands of the apostles and the coming of the Holy Spirit, he said, give me that power. <laughs> he wanted to buy it. And here we have these seven sons of this priest who were into the power of Paul and, and in exorcism in particular. And they began to use the name of Jesus to cast out demons. They would say, in the name of, of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. 
So you can kind of see the indirect approach of the command here, right? They're not saying in the name of Jesus whom we believe in. No, they're associating it to the one that Paul believes in, the one that Paul uses his name, and this thing seems to happen and work. And so they figure they can go around doing this. Well, they're wrong, and they're about to find out how wrong they are, that you cannot mishandle uh, your relationship to Christ, especially when it's not there. And so in Acts 19, he goes on to say, one day the evil spirit answered them, these seven sons, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? (laughs) That's a pretty pointed question, right? Have you ever thought about how you would answer that question? But who are you? I remember once hearing a guy preach on this, and he says, here's how you would answer that question. You would answer that question by saying, I am a child of God. And that's what these seven could not say, because they did not know Jesus Christ for themselves. So verse 16 says, Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Now, word of this situation gets out. Uh, People hear about the fact that these ones tried to do an exorcism in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches, but themselves did not have that faith in Christ and, and what had happened to them because of it. And soon what happened was a reverent fear of the name of Christ, of of God's one and only Son, um, the people honored that name. They held the name of Christ in high esteem. Uh, So much so that people began to turn away from their evil practices of idolatry and witchcraft, and they followed Jesus wholeheartedly. It could be that some of these are even the Christians who had said they were following Christ, but there came a point, a line in the sand, and they, they got rid of everything that had been a part of their previous life. And so here's how it's put in verse 19. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas, which I've read is about 50,000 pieces of silver, which is always hard to equate exactly how much. Just know this. It was a huge amount of money that that represented. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So again, we're getting this spread, people hearing, People putting their faith in Christ. The word of God is making a difference because it's transforming lives. Through faith in Jesus, there is a dent being made in the economics of this society, especially in this town. In the culture of Ephesus, things are beginning to change. People no longer are walking in the path of darkness. They've chosen light. In Jesus, they found the light of life. And once they've found this light, They leave their old life and the way of life. And the sacrifice that these people have made to leave the old cult and that practice was very expensive. But they didn't care. Life in Christ is worth way more than any kind of immoral or dishonest gain that one could get in this world. We need to remember that. There is nothing you can compare to Christ in this world. It all fades. It all passes. It's all going to be left behind. And these new Christians knew that. When our church back in... 2014, 2016, 2018, we were sending out teams to Haiti to support the work of United Christians International down in Haiti. And we got to see a lot of the way in which the gospel had impacted whole communities, transforming them. It was actually amazing to see and to be a part of. Uh, We even got to see the power of God demonstrated in some pretty amazing ways. Now, some of you have heard me tell this story before, Um, but there was a woman who was going to burn the paraphernalia that she had used for her voodoo practice 
um, she was actually someone that people would come to, and so they would pay her money in order to do her different things that she did with her magic arts. But her husband was not in the picture, and she was taking care of her children on her own, and so this was her livelihood. And she wanted to follow Christ, and in order to do so, to declare her faith in Christ, she had to burn these things. And in the moment that she was confessing her faith in Christ, evil spirits manifested themselves. She started to thrash around and, and flail. And as a group, brothers and sisters of Christ gathered around her and started to pray for her very fervently. And even those of us on the team gathered and kind of put our hands on the backs of those who were putting their hands on her while they were praying for her. It was quite a scene. But we got to witness firsthand the power of God over these evil spirits. And in about a 10, 12-minute period of praying and intense intercession, she was set free. She was calm and in her right mind. And then we carried on down to her house where she burned all of her voodoo items. Now, the next day, the team was out in the marketplace. And the woman in the yellow shirt that you may have seen sitting in the background, she came up to us. This is her. And she came running up with a smile on her face. And you could just see that the weight of the world had been lifted off her shoulders. She was no longer under the dark powers of this voodoo religion. But she was set free by Jesus Christ. And it was evident on her face that she had found this freedom. And it was worth more than any of the money that she ever made off of that former practice. It was an amazing thing for us to witness. And John, John and Christie tell us that down there, that's the normative. When a person leaves witchcraft, there is this display of the power of evil, but the power of Christ overcoming the power of evil. And whole communities have been transformed. Places where kids never used to feel safe to go through a neighboring village because there was so much hatred and competition. And now they're working together. And the gospel is come in light and change those villages so that people are finding a better way of life. Now, when these Ephesians came to faith in Christ, they left the practices of worshiping the local goddess Artemis, or Artemis and the way of life that went along with it. And because of that, because so many people's lives are being transformed, it created a problem, and that's a riot. And we're going to read about this riot now, a riot that could have claimed the life of the Apostle Paul and his companions and the church that had been formed in Ephesus. About this time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Again, Christianity. A silversmith, a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines, like statues or images of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray a large number of people here in Ephesus and in, and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose a good name, its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Now, Demetrius is no dummy. Okay, he sees the writing on the wall. He's put two and two together. If people keep turning away from idol worship, if people keep turning away from truly worshipping this deity who they see as a deity, Artemis, then their business will go with it. This is cutting into their business. You can't sell silver statues of Artemis if people don't believe that she's real and they're no longer worshiping her. So like the head of a union, he pulls together his different 
trades people like himself, but also ones that are in related trades because this has quite a ripple effect. And he's basically saying, this guy, Paul, he's the one, he's the problem, man. He's the one that says that statues that are fashioned by our hands are no gods at all. And he's turning large numbers away from us. And so he's undermining our trade. What happens? When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Now, this theater was a very large theater. It could hold up to 25,000 people. Could you imagine how freaked out those guys must have been to be dragged into this theater and uh, put up front? I mean, the cost of following Christ is pretty scary when it kind of escalates to this level. Of course, Paul himself, being Paul, wanted to actually get up in front of the crowd and address them. But his companion said, no, 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 Paul, don't do that. In fact, it even says that the city officials encouraged Paul to not do that. Don't do that. Why? Because the crowd would go wild. They would tear him limb from limb. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. I love it. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense of the people. And what does he say? They all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! That's what the people in the crowd are saying. They're, they don't even want to hear his message. Just great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. I mean, this is mob mentality at its best. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. That just seems like typical of what happens in mob mentality. Some people are just going along. Hey, there's a party. There's a crowd. There's a reason to raise our arms and get mad. And, and that's what they're doing here. Some things just haven't really changed. Then the city clerk quieted the crowd and addressed them. You know, I wondered right away, who is this city clerk? I mean, that's not, it doesn't sound like too lofty of a title, right? The city clerk gets up in front of this crowd and somehow is able to get them to quiet down, brings them under control, and he gives them this message. He appeases them. Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? That's what they believed. It's probably a meteorite, meteorite or something like that. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. Which is an interesting point to make. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. Let's talk about this for a moment. It's a pretty powerful scene, and this guy makes some pretty powerful statements. It is true that the Apostle Paul hadn't been preaching against Diana or Artemis. He'd been preaching the gospel, right? That's what Paul came to do. And this guy points out that it wasn't Paul who's created this riot in the city. It's the ones from the marketplace who got riled up and created this riot. And it seems like Luke allows, at the end of chapter 19, this story just to finish off. I mean, there's no speech by Paul where he says, well, actually, you know, this is what we believe. He doesn't do that. Luke just lets the story stand. And we kind of have to 
you know, wonder why. Like, maybe it's because the points that are being made are actually kind of true. Maybe it's good enough to know that the clerk is right. He's vindicated Paul in the church. They haven't been creating a riot. And maybe, too, that Demetrius is right in his appraisal of the gospel that it's not compatible with temple worship, with Artemis, the goddess. Maybe that is enough of a message right there that it's being made very clear that you have to choose between worshiping the true and living God or worshiping these other gods. I mean, the point's been made. That's why people burned their scrolls and left that lifestyle because they were worshiping the true and living God. And for those who chose to follow Christ, they knew that they could not do both. They had to choose. So notice in this story that Paul's approach was to preach the gospel. It says that he was in that hall, Tyrannus, day in, day out, teaching the people, preaching the people. So he rented a hall, a public place, completely legal. He wasn't at the market picketing those who were making the idols. He wasn't at the temple picketing those who were selling them to the people that were coming there to worship. No, it seems like his strategy was to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by nature of people coming to faith in Christ, their hearts would be changed. They would leave a lifestyle that was their former life of following different gods to follow the true and living God. And so this was the influence on the culture, was through the gospel taking root in the hearts of people. And you know, I've been looking at that and I think there's something that we need to be reminded of here because that should be our strategy as well. There are so many things in our culture that do disturb us and are concerning. But we want to be people who introduce those people in our culture to Jesus Christ so that their lives can be transformed. That's our focus. And I know that we've been talking a lot about this. In the fall, when we started into Acts, we were talking about being witnesses, right? And then again in the new year here, when we had our um, grace and truth um, sermon series, we were talking about how do we keep influence with those in our culture, especially those who don't believe what we believe? How do we keep that door open that we might share Christ with them? So we've been talking a lot about this, and I, I've thrown this out there a few times where I've just made this statement, Sardis Fellowship exists to make disciples who love the Lord their God with all their heart and their neighbor as themselves. Simple, it's memorable, you can take it with you, and I hope you do. That's why we're here. We don't want to lose our focus, and, and I believe that what we're seeing here is that we need to keep our focus on being a part of the mission that Christ has given to us. But you might look at that and go, right, man, I'm not a pastor. I'm not an extrovert personality type. How am I supposed to do that? I'm not Paul. I don't want to jump up in front of the crowds and preach the gospel. But I don't think that that's the picture that God has for us. I believe that being a witness for Jesus Christ happens in the way in which God has made you and in the place where God has placed you. So it happens first and foremost with our family, with our friends, with our colleagues. I mean, let's face it. The people in Ephesus, when they were coming to faith in Christ, who do you think were the first ones that could see the difference in their lives and the first ones that they would share Christ with? It was their family members. It was the people they worked with. It was those neighbors of theirs. That's how the gospel spread it. And if your parents, with your own children, I mean, we have stories of that in the Bible where the whole household comes to faith in Christ. That's our mission field. And you might wonder, well, where do I start? I'm not good at this, and I know it. I know it's really hard to know how to open our mouth to share about Jesus, right? But why don't we start with this? Start by praying and asking God to move and work in the people's lives that he's placed in your life. Could be family, could be neighbors, could be colleagues and friends. And, and pray too that God gives you a heart for them. And then pray that God gives you an opportunity. And I believe actually that once we start caring about these people, because we're praying for these people, 
it's actually not that hard to take that next step to turn a conversation. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, but I, I just, I can't quite do that. Well, then invite someone to come out to a worship service at Sardis Fellowship. Or invite them to come out to a men's breakfast or a women's night or whatever we have going on in the life of our church. There's opportunity for you to invite someone to a place where they're going to hear more about the good news of Jesus Christ. But I want to encourage us to realize that the mission that those first disciples have or had that, that we are reading about in Acts, it's still our mission. It's still what we're a part of. It's not just giving money to support missionaries that go away but it's actually understanding that we are here on the same mission as those missionaries that go away. We're here to reach our community. And God has placed you where he wants you to do that. In 1 Timothy, which was a letter that Paul wrote to his young disciple who was an up-and-coming leader, Paul writes him instructions about this, very, uh, about this very thing. And I want to point out a couple of things. I want to point out that Paul is encouraging to stay focused on the gospel and to be a person of peace. So 1 Timothy 1, 3-5 says, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, Timothy, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations, rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere Faith. So what I see Paul saying to Timothy here is don't get distracted with things that don't matter. Keep your focus on the main thing because that's the thing that's going to advance God's work. And it comes by faith, by faith in Jesus Christ. So then he goes on to say this about being a witness. I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. See, there's the prayer component of our witness. Pray for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Who what? Who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants people to come to a knowledge of his truth and to be saved. And it happens through us who are in prayer and us who are peaceful and us who are godly. I think what Paul's trying to say here is let your witness be winsome. Winsome. I think sometimes our witness can be aggressive. Our witness can be a little bit like rubbing 80-grit sandpaper on people. And what Paul is trying to say here is, you should be marked by peace. You should be marked by godliness. Let that be the thing that leads your words when sharing the gospel. The city clerk who got up to address the crowd said about Paul and the Christians, they haven't done anything wrong. There is no grounds for this riot here today. And in fact, Demetrius and his friends and all of us could be charged for causing a riot. Paul preached the gospel. God changed their lives. And this altered the culture. And I think that there's something in here for us to remember as well. Now, to close this message, I'll finish with this final uh, point, our story, a tearful farewell. Paul had left Ephesus to go and revisit the churches in the area to collect an offering for the city of Jerusalem, or yeah, for the city of Jerusalem, the church of Jerusalem, because there was a famine in Jerusalem. And, and so he's gone, he's collected that, and then he was going to head straight back to Jerusalem, but his ship ended up stopping at a port near Ephesus, the port of Miletus. And while he was at that port, he calls for the leaders of the church of Ephesus to come to him one last time. And it really is 
one last time. Because the Apostle Paul would eventually never see them again, go on to Rome, and there be executed for his faith. So this is what he says in Acts 20. And now, and so he's saying this to those church leaders from Ephesus that have gathered at the port of Miletus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. Then they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. You know, this is a tender moment. Um, Paul is reminding them about the work that he has done there amongst them. He's reviewing the last three years of his life of serving there in Ephesus and how they've come to faith and how they've grown in their faith and some now are elders in the church. And he's reminding them that false teaching will come in and they need to, what? Two things. One, watch yourselves, he says, and watch the flock. And then in this tender moment, they embrace and they kneel together, they pray together, they, they kiss one another and they say their farewell. They grieve the fact that he said, never will you see my face again. You know, they're, they're going to lose their spiritual teacher who they've relied so much on. Even in his absence, they knew that they could rely on him, but they would never see him again. They'd been through a lot together. The opposition that they had faced in the city, the amazing miracles that were done, but also the crazy experiences had melded their hearts together in the Lord. Jesus said to his first disciples that you would have troubles in this world. And he said, I've told you these things so that you may know that you can have peace in me. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. I think we need to hear that message today. And you know, as we've gone through a pretty exceedingly difficult time in the last couple of years, I think that we need to really actually unite ourselves around Christ. He is our Lord. He is the one who's overcome. And let our hearts actually be melded together like these believers and realize that we need one another. In this world, you will have trouble. And to follow Jesus will also bring trouble. Why? Well, because when you choose to put God first in your life, it means you're probably going to step on some people's toes who want to put other things first in their lives. When we claim the name of Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord, we are saying no to the gods of our times. We are called to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, and Jesus promises to be with us always. Matthew 28 puts it like this. Go and make disciples of all nations. And then he says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Well, the end of the age isn't quite here yet. So Sardis Fellowship, we are to be those witnesses to the very end of the age. So let us do that with the love of Christ as we live peaceful, quiet lives, godly, holy lives with a winsomeness about our witness to those who God has placed in our family, in our friends, on our street, and our co-workers that we might see those 
or in our life, come to know Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, by your Holy Spirit, fill us. Cleanse us. May we watch ourselves that we might also be used of you to watch out for others. Lord, I know that there are some listening to this that just think, well, it's not my job, Rod. Lord, may they hear your voice speaking to them about the fact that in little ways, you can use them to be a light to the ones that you've placed in their life. Show us and then build our courage. Show us and then show up in power through the Holy Spirit to do things that we know are only yours to do. You're the only one who can change a human heart. We can't do that. Just help us to be faithful with what you've given us. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Enjoy your Sunday or whichever day you're watching this. And we'll see you back here next Sunday. If you want to join us for an in-person service, it's 10 a.m. at Sardis Fellowship Baptist Church on Wells Road. God bless. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.